Hey, a, a, a little warning uh, before I begin this sermon, um, whether you are here in the room and you have little kids in here, or if you are uh, watching online, you're streaming it, or whether you're listening to a podcast, and if you have kids in the room, uh, just so you know, uh, tonight's sermon is about uh, demons and demonic powers, and so if you have little ones who might be scared by that sort of thing, I just want to say it now, so that way everybody sleeps tonight. Uh, so it's not a dark time. I don't anticipate it being a scary uh, sermon, but you just never know. And so I just feel like that would be just fair of me to kind of put that out there. Uh, it is great to see all of you again, and uh, I'm excited to preach tonight. I really am. So when I grew up, I didn't grow up in a house that had a lot of rules. And I think part of that came from the fact, my folks are here. Um, I think part of that came from the fact that I mean, my, my sister and I we were good kids. We didn't get in trouble. We went to church a lot. I, I followed curfew. I had good friends. I didn't drink till I was 21. Like, I did everything, like, the right way. There was really uh, only a few rules in our household, uh, and one of those rules was that I wasn't allowed to see the exorcist. Now, I don't know why that was a rule. When you think about all the things that you kids kind of grew up with, that was one of the things that I was told that I could not see, should not see, and for me, that only made it seem like the forbidden fruit that had to be tasted. And so I could remember one night being out with my friends. We were having a sleepover. We were out at Blockbuster Video like you did back then. And as we're looking for something to watch, I casually suggested to my friends, what if we were to watch The Exorcist? I mean, it's biblical. And that was enough for the fellow freshmen in high school. And so that night we got The Exorcist and we watched it. Now, I don't know what I was expecting. Uh, I, I think I had the benefit of watching it in 1992, knowing that it was made in 1972. So some things just have kind of aged poorly with the special effects. It was scary enough that I felt like I needed to tell my mom when I got home that I had watched The Exorcist, which in that moment was a little bit like the movie The Exorcist itself. It was, I got profoundly in trouble. It was one of the few times in my life where I actually was grounded uh, for uh, disobeying and <laughs> seeing this movie. And when you think about it, the, the movie The Exorcist is problematic for Christians in a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, uh, it describes something that is a fairly common occurrence in the Bible. Demonic encounters, uh, demonic possession. We do not have to look far in the scriptures to find a story or account of it. And so it is very biblically common. And yet I think for most of us, it is practically uncommon. So biblically common, but practically uncommon. What I mean by that is I think a lot of Christians have a story, a spooky story, of some time when something happened, something fell off a shelf, or something happened that was unexplainable, and in those moments we, we, uh, we would attribute that to being something dark, or we have a, a terror in the night that wakes us up, or there is some sort of moment that we can't explain, and it gets put in that category, but it doesn't quite rise to the level that we see in Scripture. So it is biblically common, but it is personally uncommon for a lot of us. And what that means is that for many Christians, we believe in the demonic world and demonic forces in the abstract. 
So we believe in it cognitively. We, we believe that the scriptures are true, but we don't have a real practical experience with it. We don't know really what to make of it or what to do with it. And so we affirm that it's real, but we don't really know how to interact with it in a meaningful way. Uh, today, I think a lot of times, if we were to talk about the demonic world or about to talk about demonic possession, it is casually dismissed by Christians and non-Christians alike as just being misdiagnosed mental illness in the ancient world. That that's what we're really looking at. You're looking at schizophrenia. You are looking at bipolar. Uh, you're looking at these sorts of things that you're not really looking at demonic possession. They simply did not have the science or the medicine for it back in the day to truly attribute it. But one of the problems with that kind of line of thinking, and, and we'll get into that uh, in a later part of the sermon, is that there's a whole host of passages which talk about spiritual realities which are bigger than possession. Which talk about there being dark forces, that there are dark encounters, that there are moments where we're talked about being under a spiritual attack. Those things are bigger than just uh, possession, right? Or they go alongside of it. So if we're going to dismiss uh, possession because that's mental illness, we are still left with a whole host of things that the scripture attributes as being true and being real in the believer's life that we still have to deal with. And what I want to actually affirm is I really believe that mental illness and, in fact, spiritual attack and demonic powers go together far more common than we actually think or give it credit to do. And so I think it's really there. The way the Bible talks about it is that in many places in our lives, we are under spiritual attack and demonic influence at all times in the life of the believer. That we're commonly underneath the attacks of Satan his, his uh, minions, demonic activity, and that we are called to, in a sense, arm ourselves, prepare ourselves for the battle that is ahead of us, but most of us just go into it blind. Because we don't have practical experience to really talk about it, we end up living in a battlefield without ever really realizing that we're taking spiritual bullets and it's harming us. And so I think tonight is one night, and it's probably what will be a series of things that we talk about in the future, that tries to open our eyes to spiritual realities that are happening around us and that we need to be aware of so that we can thrive in Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been in a series coming out of the book of Acts since the fall. We've been going slowly through it. I hope you are not burned out on it yet, but we're going slowly through the book of Acts and we're seeing both what a church can be and what it should be when the Holy Spirit is the leading agent, kind of leading into it and, and forming it. Uh, what we're seeing here tonight is three consecutive stories that are showing how Jesus is greater than any of the powers that we could come against in our life. Last week it was against uh, Herod, against the sovereign powers, that Jesus is greater than any king, any president, any government, any military. He is greater. Tonight we're looking at how Jesus is greater than any other spiritual force that we might see. And finally, in two weeks, it will be that Jesus is greater than any sort of illness that we might face. Now Luke chooses these three stories to tell in part because he, want, he knows that Christians are going to face these powers in the future. He is telling them stories about the past of the church so they can be prepared for the future of the church because he knows that they're going to come, into, come into contact with hostile governments and hostile demons, and they're going to come into, into encounters with, with physical illness that's going to rock their faith unless they are prepared for it. And so it's good for us to listen tonight because there is a reason why Luke has put this here in the passage. Now tonight we're going to be in Acts 13, 
It is the story of a, of a, uh, a man named Elimus. He has another name in the passage. It is Bar-Jesus. So if you hear Bar-Jesus and Elimus, that is the same person. I'm telling you so don't get confused. Also, uh, they're also to let you know for some reason, whenever I read Bar-Jesus, sometimes I pronounce it as Bar-Jesus. There is no good reason for this. He is not Spanish. But if that happens, please throw a Bible at me because I will definitely deserve it. Uh, Finally, uh, in this passage, Saul, who we've known, his name changes to Paul. And so in the beginning of the passage, it's Saul. At the end of the passage, it's Paul. So if I mix it up tonight, tonight, I get to mix it up because it's mixed up even in the own passage. So Acts 13, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles and stand with me. We're going to be in Acts 13, verse 4. The two of them, meaning Barnabas and Saul, the two of them were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, and they went down to Seleucia, and they sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as a helper. That's John Mark, uh, Mark the gospel writer, so he is with them here, and he's going to become an incredibly important figure in the passages ahead. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, and will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking for someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord." This is the word of God for us tonight. You can be seated. Would you pray, Lord? Jesus, we ask for your power to be present in this room. Uh, Lord, we want to begin by acknowledging that we are in a spiritual battle and that, Lord, even in this room there are spiritual enemies. And tonight we want to ask that you would be greater as you, of course, are and that, Lord, your rule and reign would extend in here and that, God, any sort of hardness in our hearts or resistance from your spiritual enemies and opponents would be removed. And that, God, tonight your spirit would move freely in this room. That you would teach us from your word, and you'd bring us to a deeper faith in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, really quickly, where we've been just a moment ago, is that Saul and Barnabas had been in Antioch. And really, when you think about the church in Antioch, it is the ideal church. There is no other church like it. What had happened, again, I'm going to do this really fast, is that Saul had been a Pharisee who was persecuting the church. He persecuted them at such a level that the people scattered from Jerusalem all throughout kind of the Middle East, and the Christians were suddenly spread, and now new churches were started. Some Christians went to the city in Antioch, and they preached the gospel there. What was unique about this is it was the first time that the gospel was preached 
to both Jews and Gentiles at the same time. And so the church was multicultural right from the beginning. It grew so quickly that they needed someone to come in and teach and disciple. And the person that they chose was a man named Barnabas. And the second one was a man named Saul. The same man who had persecuted the church and had caused them to flee had come to know Jesus, and now he was a leader in the church. The church grows in such a profound way that they begin to raise up teachers and people who are elders and overseers in the church who are sharing in the preaching to the place where they look at Saul and Barnabas and they say, you know what, guys? We really don't need you. We have a lot of teachers here in this church. Why don't we send you two out to go on a missions trip and to start new churches? Because we got this one. It is a remarkably healthy church. We know nothing dramatic about the church in Antioch. And so they launch Saul and Barnabas out on their first missions trip. And the first place that they go is to the island of Cyprus, which is just off of the coast of Rome. And from the very beginning, uh, God is profoundly with them. They land on Cyprus, and they begin kind of traveling throughout it, and they find that they are seeing people come to faith. But more than that, it's only a matter of time before they get an invite to go to the head government official, the proconsul that is there, who is a Roman official, and they get a chance to meet with him. Now, now just think about this for a minute. These are travelers. These people are not famous. Saul and Barnabas do not have influence. They do not have a formal position. All they have is that they have come to know Jesus Christ and his love has changed them and they are now have a heart that is growing in love, so much so that people who were once their enemies, now they are leading them to Christ. And so all of a sudden they are on this new island and they have a meeting with the person who has the most influence there on the island. God is opening up doors and opportunities for them to preach and to minister there. God is with them to those in the highest position and also to those in the lowest. But although they have favor from God, they also hit a moment of opposition right off the bat. Because Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, he has a sorcerer who advises him. So it's very common in these days, and probably even today, for anybody who is in a position of power or authority to have people who will tell you the truth and who will advise you. Now, Sergius Paulus wants someone who can speak to the gods on his behalf. He's a Roman. He believes in the gods. He wants someone who could tell him what the spirits say, what the gods say, and what he should do in the spirit. So he has hired and brought this man on who has two names. His first name, Bar-Jesus. I mean, I did it. I did it. Bar-Jesus indicates that he is a Jew. His name would have meant, Bar-Jesus' way is translated, is the son of salvation. So he has this very Jewish, uh, very profound, meaningful name. But he's also called Alimus, which the text tells us means magician. So if you want to kind of understand what this would mean, he has both a Jewish name where he's claiming to be a prophet, and he's also claiming to be a sorcerer. A good comparison would be is that if I stood up here and welcomed you to Coastline, and if I introduced myself to you as that I am the pastor and shaman of Coastline, that is how it would land. He is claiming religious power from two very different streams. He is claiming to be a Jewish, Jewish prophet and a magician. He is someone who is trying to get spiritual power from wherever he can so that he could use it for himself or for those who might hire him out. Now, 
Who is Elimus beyond that? He is someone who probably, whether, let me say this, I can't say that for certain, knowing spiritual beings, not people. We find so many stories about them in the New Testament. In Luke 8, we are told of a man who is possessed by so many demons that he is called legion. That means there's just multitudes in them. And there's so many demons inside of him that he actually manifests power in there where he can break chains if he's bound. In Luke 11, we're told about a boy who's possessed by a demon and he's taken away the boy's ability to speak. He's mute. So the demon has the power over his body and he can no longer even talk. In Mark 9, we're told about a boy who's possessed by a demon and the demon throws the boy into fires trying to harm him or kill him. Now, these are, are people who have become so demonized that part of themselves is lost, and the demon has taken over control over part of their lives. They are, are uh, in terrible uh, pain, a loss of identity, a loss of their own faculty, a loss of their own agency due to the power of the demon in their life. And so when I say dark forces, I am talking about the, these demons who are working in the lives of people. Now, again, whenever we hear these kinds of things, we tend to think of mental illness. Most people that I've read over the last of the two weeks today affirm that both mental illness and demonic activity tend to go together. Uh, there is a demonic world that wor- tries to work and to use anything it can to harm uh, the people that God loves. Uh, And so that they tend to affirm that if a person is wrestling with mental illness on a spiritual level, they are probably wrestling with demons as well. How is that? Uh, The way Charles Kraft, who is a a thinker and a writer on this, um, he's definitely on kind of the deliverance side of this sort of thing. He says this, is that the demonic is drawn to trauma like rats are drawn to trash. And so if there is trauma in your life, if there is pain in your life, if there's unforgiveness in your life, if there are these wounds that cause you to limp, if there's this pain that you've never gotten over, he would say that that demons are drawn to that kind of trauma. And if it is not resolved or forgiven or healed from or grown through, then it gives a chance for demonic powers to actually take control over that in your life. He says, ultimately, you're not going to get rid of the rats until you get rid of the trash, and so you're not going to get rid of the demons until you heal from the trauma. For those reasons, I think it's good advice that if you are in significant pain, you probably need a good therapist, and you probably also need a good spiritual director to walk you through all of the pain that you're going through. And so dark forces are personal beings who are trying to harm God's people. They are demons. But we also see a sort of impersonal dark power that exists in the scriptures. Uh, These are people who have abilities through demonic forces, but we don't actually see the demons present in it, but they're able to manifest certain power due to their allegiance with them. An example would be out of Exodus 7, 11, where Aaron throws his staff on the ground and it turns into a serpent, and Pharaoh's magicians are able to throw their staffs on the ground, and they turn into serpents as well, not by the power of the Spirit, but by their own power that they have. In 1 Samuel 28, we are told about the witch of Endor who's able to summon the dead spirit of Samuel for Saul and to come and speak with him. In Acts 16, we're told about a slave who has a spirit who can foretell the future. And we're told in Revelation 13 that ultimately when the beast of the earth comes, he will perform such great miracles and signs, including fire coming from the heaven, that people will believe that he's actually of God. And so the Bible's really clear. 
that there are people who through their allegiance to dark powers, to Satan, to demons, are actually able to take some of that power and in some way manifest it or channel it or use it for their own goods. That is where we see Alimus. We don't have any sort of sense of personal demons acting, but we see him acting most likely with demonic power, having manifested those things in this way. And you and I, we are in a daily battle against both demons and dark powers. Uh, I want to go to Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 to 12. I'm going to put it here on the side screens. Uh, Let me read this to you. It gives us a, a peek into what's happening in the spiritual world. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, and that word in Greek is wrestling, our wrestling, it's not against flesh and blood, people, but it's against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He separates those things out. He says that you may not think that, well, let me do it this way. I think every one of us knows what it feels like to have an enemy, to have an opponent, to have somebody who just seems to have it out for you. You might know exactly why they do, or you might not know exactly why. But we know what it's like to, to feel like we have somebody who we just cannot possibly exist in a good, healthy relationship because they just want to harm us. And oftentimes when we have that kind of person in our life, and I think most of us are probably trying to We can see them right now already in our mind. What the Bible tells us is that although you have those kinds of people who come across in our lives, our battle's not actually against them. Our battle's not actually against flesh and blood. He says that there's actually a a power behind them. That there's a force behind their actions. And our struggle is against the demonic, which is operating behind the scenes, and not against the people who are, hap- who are living on the stage. He says, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. So here on earth, in America, in the South Bay, there are demonic rulers and authorities and powers of this place And they're using their power to try to destroy you. And they're more than that. They're using their power to try to lead people as far away from God as they can. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says this. He's speaking to people who've become Christians. He says, as for you, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he says, in every person who is disobedient, in every person who is not walking with Christ, in every person who's still lost in their sin and is still rebelling from God, in them there's a spirit who is acting who is doing his best to put up as many obstacles and walls to keep them from actually hearing and receiving Jesus, from ever turning in repentance and coming to faith. And the scripture says that our battle is against those forces of this place. And they are around us and they are present. But the second thing he says is that our battle is also against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So he says there is this thing happening here on the earth, but there's also this thing happening in places that we don't see and we are far less aware of. That there's a spiritual battle happening almost in the heavens. And that we too are fighting against them. 
that we are not just battling as things here, but we are called and invited into the battle that Christ is waging here to eliminate Satan forever. We see this partly uh, in Daniel 10. I'm going to do too many Bible verses tonight. In Daniel 10, where we're told that there is a prince of Persia who is, needs to be fought by the archangel Michael. Who is the prince of Persia? He's not talking about the actual prince. He's talking about a demonic entity who has power and authority in Persia. And somehow that ex exists in the spiritual realms. And so we're told these are the battles that we need to fight. Not against people. Not against your ex. Not against your bad boss. Not against that terrible neighbor. Not against the person who sued you or is suing you. Not against the person who blew up your life and hurt you in terrible ways that you still can't quite recover from. Your battle's not against them. This is your battle is against the, the powers and forces behind them who are exerting influence in their lives and in the lives of all of us. That you and I need to arm ourselves with faith, the Bible, truth, and righteousness. And what happens in this passage is that when Paul and Barnabas, when they enter the court of Sergius Paulus, they're entering into a spiritual battleground. The problem is they just don't know it. In fact, when you look at the text, there's a couple things that are happening here that show that they're slow to realize the battle that they're in. It says in verse, verse 6 that they meet Elimus. It says then in verse 7 that they're brought to Sergius Paulus, and they begin to preach to him. In verse 8, it says that Elimus then opposes them and argues against them. At this point, Paul has likely thought that Elimus is a distraction, an annoyance, perhaps even an opponent. But it says that ultimately the Spirit has to stir in Paul before he's able to see Elimus for what he really is. And once the Spirit stirs inside of Paul, and once his eyes are open, he tells him, you're a child of the devil, an enemy of all that is right, and full of deceit and full of trickery. He doesn't realize it at first. It takes God revealing it to him. And man, when I read that passage, it's so encouraging to me because I feel like for myself that I've gone through most of my life totally blind to the spiritual battles that are happening around me. That the Spirit, for whatever reason, just never really opened my eyes to it. I think part of it was that I've always grown up in very conservative Christian environments that have been very strong on the Bible. If you were at Rolling Hills Covenant in the 1990s, if somebody raised their hands, well then something spiritual was happening. That was as risky as it got. We talked about the idea of demons, but the idea of personal attacks of it was one of the things that I was never really warned of uh, and never really made aware of in my own everyday life. I just never saw it. I think ultimately, for us to really realize the spiritual battle we're in, we need the Spirit to touch us in the way that it did Paul to open our eyes to the spiritual attacks that we face. So what are they? What are the signs of the spiritual battles or the demonic attacks that we face? So I want to be cautious as I say this because I think I'm generalizing and I'm outside of the text and I'm certainly outside of my comfort zone. But I want to generally kind of portray to you what demonic attacks tend to look like. At the most basic level, demonic attacks look like temptation. A constant pulling towards sin. Uh, it looks like spiritual apathy. Not able to kind of stir ourselves to pursue God, just not really caring 
really to read our scripture to find our prayer life meaningless, our church attendance uh, irregular, that we just find our own spiritual pulse is small. Uh, We find a certain level of guilt or shame that follows us wherever we go. We are prone to fear. We commonly tell lies. We live with anxiety and depression. These are all signs, I think, of demonic activity. There are signs of more. Obviously, there's things that could be happening with trauma in our lives that we could need professional help with, but they're also a sign of demonic activity. Uh, An example, uh, when I was in college, I had a roommate who was absolutely uh, struggling because he said, I cannot control my thoughts. I have these pictures of violence that come to my mind. These horrible obscenities that I see. There's these words that go through my mind and I don't want them. I don't know how to stop them. He's like, I am a worse sinner than you'd ever know, Sean. And I remember sitting there listening to him and this person who was so gentle talking about the things that were going on inside of his head, which were so painful. And I said, I don't think that's you. In fact, I think it's demonic. I think those things that are going through your head, they're not coming from you. They're coming, in fact, from spiritual attacks. And so since I was his roommate, whenever these things would happen, we'd pray, we'd stop, and we'd take, we'd kind of claim his life and his mind as holy ground again. And that began to release him from the fear of these things, but he'd lived with that for so long. In my belief, under any spiritual attack and never really realizing it. We had a student who was a perpetual liar. Lied in ways that you absolutely could not believe. You would come to church and we'd say, how was your week? And he'd say, good, you know, I had a tryout with the Dodgers this week. I think they're going to sign me. And you'd look at him and go, no, you didn't. But it didn't matter because there was such pain in his life that the lying was a way that he could prop up and hide from the pain. The trauma, the trash, and then the rats. And it didn't matter what you did, the lies became this thing that was at a level that I simply had never seen before. I've had congregants who cannot stay into worship because it just makes them feel too guilty. All of these, I think, are signs of the basic level of demonization. At a more moderate level of attack that I think we face, I think we would describe it as not just temptation, but I would describe it as like compulsion. Uh, The way Ephesians 4.26 says is that they're those who have given Satan a foothold. So they haven't just given in to temptation. They've done enough that now Satan has a kind of power authority in their life, in that realm, so that they are losing power and Satan is gaining power in that life. I had students who were engaged in the highest, uh, the riskiest level of sexual activity multiple partners in one night, and they're 16. That's the kind of compulsion and behavior that is coming from a place of trauma, but I thought was beginning to draw the rats as well. We had a student who was not only uh, cutting, but the way they would do is they would get a cigarette lighter and they would burn it. They would get it as red hot and they would sear their arms with it all the way down, trying to kind of mask the pain in their life. That is a level of compulsion and attack that I think is advanced demonic activity. Uh, there's a, a homeschool kid in the ministry who uh, I felt like I was connecting with, and then I just felt like I was losing him, and I never knew why. And he and I reconnected just about a month ago, and I was like, tell me about what happened after high school. He's like, well, what you never knew in high school is I was doing heroin. I was like, you're homeschooled. Well, how did you get heroin? Who's your mom, your dealer? How on earth did this happen? And so it was one of those things where he's like, yeah, you know, it just, I was in this dark depression, and then the bottom fell out. 
See, these kinds of compulsive behaviors, activities of danger and pain and destruction are places where temptation has gone to foothold, and now they're losing control of the power, and they're being torn apart by spiritual forces. And at the most advanced levels, you know, we had, I can remember a time with, uh, we had a person come to Rolling Hills and said, I need to be prayed for. And Byron and I said, sure, we'll we'll pray for you. And every time we said the name Jesus, they stood up and tried to run out of the room and then sit down again. Okay. And this happened repeatedly, repeatedly. Them unable to control their body and them saying, I need more prayer, I need more prayer, I need more prayer because they now were, in a sense, being driven by the demons outside. In my own personal life, I had a, a cousin who uh, was, did two tours in Afghanistan. After two tours in Afghanistan, came back to New Orleans, lived above a, uh, a voodoo temple, and uh, eventually um, ended up, I don't want to say this, jeez. <laughs> My family, <laughs> they know, they're like, oh, it's cute. You know, um, you know, ended up murdering someone and then killing himself and said that the demons told him that he had to take his life for the one that he took. So that's like the most advanced levels of this thing, right? So these are the sorts of ways I think that we can get, again, this is imprecise. Um, and any of these we could talk through and probably explain some of them, but it generally show you that these are the ways I think demons try to attack and manipulate and harm the lives of believers. And that you and I, we live in a spiritual battleground. And ultimately, the goal of every spiritual battleground is the same. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. Uh, you are a child of the devil. This is Paul speaking to him. And you're an enemy of everything that's right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? The ESV says it better, I think. Will you ever stop making straight paths crooked. What he's saying there is that God has made a straight path for Paul and Barnabas from Antioch to this city, to the court here of the proconsul. It is a straight line. They didn't know how they were going to get there, and they've traveled kind of throughout Cyprus. But for God, it's been a straight line from there, from Antioch, to this man because he wants this man to hear about Jesus Christ. It has been a straight line. And there's a straight, plan, straight line of redemption for this man as well. That because of Jesus' death upon the cross, there is grace and forgiveness and renewal for every sinner who comes by faith and repentance to him. That is a straight line. God has a straight line from them to this man, and God has a straight line of salvation for this man. And Elimus' goal is to make that straight line as crooked as possible to try to cause them to doubt, to be concerned, to maybe not to be so sure, to check out. That is the goal always of all spiritual uh, forces that live in oppression of us. They want to stop and to, and to make it complex and to make it difficult. But really, once Paul realizes what's happening, and this is what ultimately the demons do not want, the battle ends really quick. It ends really quick. In fact, the moment that Paul realizes it, with a word, it is over. With a word, he silences him. With a word, he strikes the man blind. And with a word, the conflict comes to an end because, as 1 John 4, 4 says, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And the name of Jesus is greater. Look, I told you stories earlier about Pharaoh's magicians and about the witch of Endor. But in reality, I really had to dig to find those stories. 
There are stories about demonic dark powers present in the scriptures, but there are not many. But on every page of the scripture, there's a story about the miracles of Jesus Christ and the great workings of God. They're on every page. Those dark forces and the dark demonic powers, it is real. And we need to be aware and we need to be cautious. But we don't need to be afraid because the power of Jesus simply is greater. I find this whole interaction between Paul and Elimus fascinating. Because Paul, who had been living in rebellion from God, when God finally became real to him, he was struck blind. And when, uh, when Paul sees Elimus, and when he sees what he's doing, he strikes him blind as well. It's a gracious act. It's a gracious act of one who knows that his battle is not against flesh and blood, but his battle is against spiritual forces in the earthly and heavenly realms. And so by the power and the name of Jesus, he easily conquers. The man is a fool, but he's not an enemy. I, I probably need to wrap this up. I need to bring it in for a landing. So how do I make this really simple for you today? How do we actually come out of this and be prepared for the battle we're in? Uh, four quick thoughts. One, Ephesians 5.18 says that we need to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. The great strength of the Christian in spiritual battles is not the number of people that are present. It is not holy water or rosaries. It is not any of those things. That what it is, is the prayer of Christians. In fact, when the disciples came across a demon who they could not cast out, what did Jesus say? This one is cast out by prayer. Prayer is the great solution into spiritual battles. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, On his knees, the believer is invincible. And so you and I, in spiritual battles, when we pray, we are not doing something small. We are doing something great. Number two, we need to know that it, when we resist Satan in the spirit, he will run. James 14, James 4, 17 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The greatest uh, liability we have in this battle is ignorance. We don't see the attacks, but once we can recognize it, and once we can pray, and once we can stand in the power of the Spirit, is in those moments that we conquer. And so if we resist in the power of God, we will overcome. Third, you and I need to get serious about really growing in the Lord and growing in the Word. If I told you that you were running a marathon in six months, you would start training. If I told you that you were retiring in five years, you would start getting your finances in order. If I told you that tonight you're going to Nobu for dinner, you would shower and shave. If I told you that you, needed to go, that you were going into a battle, then you better be getting your weapons ready. We prepare for anything that's important to us. And if we're going to live in a spiritual battle, then you and I need to begin to be ready for what is to come. We need to grow in faith, trust, and hope. And the fifth thing, if you want to be free from some of the demonic powers in your life, you have to take out your trash. You need to deal with some of the pain and the trauma and the wounds that you've been holding on to for a long time. And you need to begin to talk to someone about that. Now, maybe that is a therapist, maybe that's a pastor, maybe that's our prayer team, but you need to talk to someone because until you experience healing and growth in that life, in your, that place in your life, it will always be a place that Satan is poking at and grabbing after. Let me pray. Lord, I don't know where our people are at. Um, Father, you know my own levels of ignorance in this. Lord, I can do the text. 
But Lord, I wouldn't say that I have the experience to truly speak um, with a ton of personal authority here. But God, I trust that you're in this room. Spirit, I know that you're here. Jesus, I know that you love these people and you want to step into their life. And Lord, for anybody whose heart and life has been uh, one that has been defined by brokenness, by pain, by sin, by the fall, by the world, by demonic powers, God, we want to ask that you would come and give them freedom through the name of Jesus Christ. And if that's just you, and if you know that you need that freedom, if you know that you need that release, if you know ultimately that you need a change of allegiance, you need a greater power in your life that loves you and doesn't want to harm you, that tonight I just want to ask that you to give your life to Jesus. That by faith you would accept him. And that you would return to him the love that he's given to you. And that Lord, you would give him your sins and receive from him his gracious forgiveness and love. I want to invite you into that. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that this would be a place that the demons fear to come. At Kosan, we have a place that they tremble at when they hear the name because they know that you are here and that you live amongst your people, that your spirit's present. God, may it be so. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.